So I want to share a little bit of how we, uh, as they say, make the sausage. I want to give you a little behind the scenes uh, of each Sunday service. Now, every week, every service that we have, it, there are a lot of different people, a lot of different teams involved in this service. So, and every single person that is involved is essential to creating a, what we call a liturgy. Now, liturgy is basically the order of service, a liturgy that uh, intends to draw everyone in our community closer to God, okay? The, the different teams, they are designed, they're intended to help create this environment that allows us to, to sit in God's presence, that allows us to draw nearer to God. Here we have the production crew up there. Uh, we have the hospitality team. We have the CFC team, we're freshman's team. We have the worship team, and we have the pastor team, which I'm a part of, right? And now we have a new team that we've labeled Team Lit. They have their own little fire emoji as well. Because now, just let me say, Team Lit stands for our liturgy or our liturgical team. So Team Lit are all the folks that help us complete the different parts of our service. We have our MCs, uh, like Nate. We have our mission moment advocate, like my wife Suzette. We have our scripture readers. Uh, was supposed to be Jason, but there's issues right now. But anyway, they're all part of this team we call Team Lit which is, I think, appropriate. You know, I think my wife is pretty lit, so that's good. Um, by the way, if you're older, you don't know, lit means amazing, just as FYI. Um, we are a church, by the way, that absolutely wants everyone to be involved, from the major things to the minor things, because I like to say community is not something you find. Community is something you build. And so we want to be a body of Christ that's not consumeristic in mindset, but we want to be a body that's building together a community. So... If you're not involved in some form or fashion, I'm going to ask you, come chat with me, email me, talk to me, find ways to get involved as a part of this community that we're building. But anyway, part of my job as the pastor uh, on the pastor team, I need to provide content, some information uh, to support all the teams, especially Team Lit, right? And so I did that and I wrote, sent out the notes. I included today's passage so that they can have it on our videos is that uh, today's uh, title message, I'm calling it Miserable Comforters, and you'll see why in a second. I included the scripture reading. Uh, I also included the passage that today's sermon is going to cover, and that's chapters 4 to 27. There's 23 chapters. It's a lot. It's 80% of the book of Job. And someone did message me, and they wanted to be sure that I did not make a typo, because maybe they, I wanted someone to read Job chapter 4, verse 27, which would not be possible because Job 4 only has 21 verses, but those notes were correct. We are covering chapter 4 to chapter 27. And I'm going to say this. Don't worry about it. Um, I like to keep my messages short, first of all. And if you've been using one of the reading plans that I emailed out, or maybe your community group is actually diving deep into the book of Job, or maybe... You're just someone who really likes the book of Job and you've read it a few times. You know that basically Job's, his, his three friends, they went from being pretty amazing people in chapter two to becoming pretty horrible and starting in chapter four and going on to the end. And, and, and as you read through chapter four to chapter 27, you see this trio, they're teaching us in vivid detail how to be horrible Friends, I like Job's words. In chapter 16, verse 2, he says, Miserable comforters are y'all. So chapter 4 to 27, basically it's a discussion, it's a debate between these miserable comforters and Job. 
Now, next week, Chris is going to be preaching on Job's response. Uh, but today, what I want to do is I want to look at the words of these miserable comforters. And I want to learn, hopefully, what not to say. And let me start by just simply summarizing these 23 chapters at, from the part of the three terrible friends. The, these, these 23 chapters basically are this. They're saying Job's suffering, Job's fault. All the stuff that's happening to Job is because Job must have done something wrong. And that's it. That's the 23 chapters. For 23 chapters, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, 23 chapters of his quote-unquote friends basically telling Job, all this suffering is because of you. You did something wrong. But then if you turn to Job chapter 42, verse 7, God tells Eliphaz this, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So not only were these three friends miserable comforters, they were also misrepresenting God. So like I said, I'm going to take some time today to look at what we can do to avoid going down the same path that Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad did, how we can avoid becoming miserable comforters. Right? And as I was preparing for today's message, I was really racking my brain. I was trying to think of examples of friends like Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad in my life. Now, 10 years ago, uh, previous life, I used to work as a director of product for a startup company, a mobile app company. Uh, it, the one of the co-founders co is a friend of mine. He asked me to, he brought me in. I did that for a few years. And anyway, I remember the day that he called me up and he said, I need you to start putting your resume together. I was getting laid off. And there's a long story around that and how everything that happened, that's not relevant, but there's two things that are relevant that I want to share with you. One, I totally remember how I felt when I got that phone call. And I was actually, I was freaking out because it had been decades since I'd had to look for a job. I didn't know how to put a resume together anymore. So I was just scared out of my mind. The other thing that's relevant and that I remember is this. It's the words of my Eliphaz, Zophar and Bildad. What that person said to me was this. Everything happens for a reason. Shut up. Such a miserable comforter you are. A few weeks ago, Pastor Joey, he was excitedly going on to cheer his beloved Detroit Lions. Uh, if you're not aware, as I just learned today, today's Super Bowl, and uh, they lost. The Lions lost to San Francisco. Um, and I still think the words of his Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad are ringing in him. And the words were, I'm so glad the 49ers won. <sighs> miserable comforter that you are. I want you to take a moment right now from your seat. Think of a miserable comforter in your own life. If you can't think of someone, think of what they said, something that was said. And if you can't think of that, maybe you were the miserable comforter in someone else's life. Maybe you failed to read the room. Maybe you failed and you said something unhelpful. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's safe to assume um, that each of us here can probably think of at least one example of one or the other. In the book of Job, it shows us that we're not alone. You have company being the subject of, or maybe just being the miserable comforter. It's been the reality on earth for a long time. And there's a lot of things that we can learn in these 23 chapters about what not to do how we can learn how to avoid becoming miserable comforters. 
But I'm just going to focus on a few today. And the very first one I want to focus on this is this. Stop assuming. There's this old adage. Uh, many of you may be familiar with it. It says uh, basically don't assume because when you assume, you make a ASS donkey of you and, and me. me. And these three definitely make bad assumptions. These three are definitely some donkeys. Because all three assumed that Job was hiding some deep, dark, secret sin, and he just needed to confess, and, and then everything would be great, copacetic. But in Job chapter 22, verse 5, Eliphaz, this is what he says to him, not, is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. But we get some behind the scenes. We see in the very first chapter that the suffering that Job was going through had nothing to do with him, or at least nothing to do with anything he specifically did. Actually, he was blameless and upright. Job chapter 1, verse 8 says very specifically, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. See, their assumption, it was based on an incomplete understanding of Scripture, and it was based on an incomplete understanding of the situation that Job was in. You know, as I was studying this, if you look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, this is what it says. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In Psalm chapter 37, verse 9, it says there, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And, and, and if you read these, you're like, um, what Eliphaz wrote, it doesn't actually seem very far off. But he was working with incomplete information. And it resulted in a bad assumption. Because, right? you know, we have to consider the context of any scripture we read. And we do it by looking at the entirety of of scripture. And if we consider the entirety of scripture, then we can understand that gospel transform living it means that we need to look at the long game, not immediate gain. See, what one sows, one will absolutely reap. Evildoers will be cut off. Yes. But when? When this will happen is not something that's according to our will. It is absolutely according to God's wisdom. Looking at the entirety of Scripture, you see example after example after example of God's redemption timing being based on Him, not on you and me. Because you, like, you have evil kings uh, in Israel. They would reign for decades. You have evil people prospering. In Revelation, you have these martyrs in heaven. They're waiting and saying, God, how long until we're vindicated? Yes. Yes, what one sows, one will reap. Evil shall be cut off. But for a lot of folks, that day is not going to come until the day of judgment. And not only can one make a bad assumption based on an incomplete understanding of Scripture, but you can also make a bad assumption based on an incomplete understanding of a situation. Because sometimes, sometimes, the suffering that the person near you is going through, it's not something that they've sown. Sometimes, just like Joel, it's truly innocent suffering that's causing it. 
So these miserable comforters, they assumed incorrectly that because so much bad was happening to Job that he must have done something wrong. And so he had to do the one thing that he must do, which is repent. And here's the thing. At the heart of this concept is this, there's an incorrect understanding of what gospel transformation is intended to be. See, for these miserable comforters, for them, faith in God is transactional. If I obey, God will reward. Obedience is the price I pay to have a blessed life. In other words, they didn't desire God out of a desire for God. They desired God for what God could provide to them. So the first lesson I think we can take away from these miserable comforters is this. Stop assuming. Stop assuming a transactional faith. Instead, we need to start seeking a transformational relationship with our Father in heaven. In order for us to stop assuming a transactional faith, though, and to move to living a transformational relationship, first of all, we need to actually stop living a transactional faith. We need to start building a transformed relationship with God. And so what I want to do is I want to get practical for just a moment before we move on to the second one. And this is potentially going to be a little uncomfortable as we consider what that might mean for each of us, including me. I want you to consider why y'all are sitting here right now, or maybe if you're online, why you're not sitting here right now. For those of you who are here, are you here right now because you're a big fan of Jacob and wanted to watch him play? Are you here because you are hoping your kids will learn to chill out at Sunday school? Are you here because you're looking for a significant other? Good luck with that. Uh, are you here because you want to earn some heaven bucks, get some points in heaven? Or, are you here because of a true desire to grow closer to God? To not neglect gathering together as is the habit of some? Are you here because you understand that, that because of your desire to draw nearer to our God in heaven, you want to also be near your fellow image bearers of God? You want to encourage and you want to be encouraged. Don't misunderstand me. No shame, no shade on anyone for why you're here. I'm glad, we're glad that you're here regardless of why you've come. But I want to say that as we seek to become a community of gospel-transformed disciples, I'm going to ask that we stop assuming and stop living a transactional faith and start considering living a transformational relationship with the Lord of Lords and with the King of Kings. That's the first one. The second lesson that I think that we can learn from this passage is from, um, is this. Stop blaming the victim. Job chapter 15, verse 4. Eliphaz accuses Job of a few things. He says this, but you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. And let me explain. Basically, Eliphaz is, is proclaiming that Job is constantly saying that his suffering is not because of anything he's done. If he keeps saying, if Job keeps saying that, and, he, and if it's true, then Job is going to basically destroy the church. That's his proclamation, Eliphaz. No one's going to pray anymore. No one's going to bother going to community group anymore. No one's going to bother serving with City Impact and Adopt a Building. No one's going to bother teaching Sunday school. No one's going to, there's no need for Sunday school. The Christian world will implode. And 
I'd have to retire again and find something else to do. Because if transactional faith is not real, if a tit-for-tat theology is not the truth, Eliphaz is saying, what's the use of God? And that will not fly with Eliphaz. He can't live with that being a possibility. So to make sure that Eliphaz's reality remains intact, it has to be Job's fault. It's got to be his fault. Eliphaz has to blame Job for the suffering. Job, Job, because if he doesn't blame Job, if it's not Job's fault that all this is happening to him, then it could happen to Eliphaz too. I want to suggest this. I want to say, my belief is this. Blaming the victim is about protecting me. See, blaming the victim is about finding the fault in the other person so that I can look at myself and think, oh, at least I'm not like that. I mean, the dude, Eliphaz, went so far as to make up allegations about Job, against Job. Job, Job had, to, had to be doing something bad for so much bad stuff to happen to him. In Job chapter 22, verse 5 to 9, this is what he wrote. Is, is, is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities? For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink and you withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. And you have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless crushed. See, if blaming the victim is about me, it's about protecting me, it's about being self-centered, then I think the solution, the way to not be a miserable comforter can be found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, we stop blaming the victim by loving the victim. We stop blaming the victim by not looking for reasons for their suffering. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it tells us that we're to love each other deeply as sisters and brothers. We, we stop blaming the victim by no longer violating God's original design from the beginning, from creation. We stop blaming the victim by no longer ignoring God's intention for those who are created in his image to be in relationship with each other and with him. Um, Back in the 1990s, I, I was working in Chicago as a social worker, uh, and uh, AIDS was becoming uh, a bigger thing, especially in the Asian American community over in Chicago. Uh, there was an organization that I used to volunteer with, help out, partner with, um, and they would do HIV testing, um, among, especially amongst Asian Americans. It was an Asian American organization. Anyway, uh, anytime somebody was asked to return to get the results from their HIV test, they were always asked, do not come alone. Bring somebody you trust. And sometimes the folks would come back with no one. No one that they could trust. So this organization, they would step up. They would step up and bring a volunteer in those moments. Someone who showed no judgment. Someone who did not blame. Someone who just loved. So as that person would receive their news, whether it was good or bad, that volunteer would celebrate with them or cry with them. See, the thing is, we each bear God's image, right? And we are called to love one another deeply as sisters and as brothers because this 
is how we consider others more significant. This is how we stop blaming the victim. This is how we avoid becoming miserable comforters. Um, I'm actually going to start wrapping up so you have more time to eat stuff downstairs. Um, but I want to end with one last lesson. And just to summarize, let me say, we avoid becoming miserable comforters uh, by one, stop assuming a transactional faith, and two, by stop blaming the victim. Uh, stopping to blame the victim. The last thing, and I think this is something that could be like an umbrella over the first two that I just mentioned, which is this. Check your theology. So I want to read uh, just the last verse of the passage that was read today from Job. Job chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Now, I'll tell you, if I'm being very, very honest, and if I did not have the context of the entirety of Scripture, I would read this, this verse from uh, Eliphaz and think, oh, you know, that, that sounds about right. Actually, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, it says something very similar. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves the one whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. But there's something you can see when you read through these 23 chapters. See, our miserable comforters, you can see their theology. And I, I would sum up their theology like this. They believe God has absolute control over everything. Agree. They also believe God is absolutely fair and just. Yes, absolutely. Therefore, God will always punish the wicked and bless the righteous now. And if you're suffering, you've sinned. You're just being punished. And this is where I think we have to take the lesson that the author of Job is trying to show us. We need to check our theology regularly. Because yeah, God has absolute power and control over everything. Agreed. And yes, God is absolutely fair. God is absolutely just. And yes, we can say with confidence that our absolutely fair and absolutely just God will absolutely punish the wicked and bless the righteous one day. But thank God for 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, a bad theology of our miserable, the bad theology of our miserable comforters is that God's promise is based on my timeline. That's wrong. God's promise is based on his timeline. It's based on the timeline of a patient and loving father who does not want anyone to perish, who does not want anyone to be separated from him. God will punish the wicked on the day he decides, on the day of his judgment. We cannot ignore, we cannot forget the fact that God is giving each and every one of us every opportunity for his called and for his chosen to recognize and to repent. The other part of the miserable comforter's theology that is a bit sus, and sus means suspect, uh, the miserable comforter's sus theology is this, this idea that suffering is only ever a result of sin. And if that were truly the case, then the devil has no role to play. So even though Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, they didn't have access, they didn't have the behind the scenes of that heavenly courtroom drama that happened in chapters one and two, so they don't have all that, but they still understand and they are fully aware of 
the devil. Job references Leviathan. He references the serpent throughout the book. So, so there is an understanding of the spiritual realm, right? Uh, that's true within uh, antiquity. But, but bad theology forgets that the devil is working hard. The devil is working hard against us constantly. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 reminds us of this too. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we avoid becoming miserable comforters by checking our theology. And I'll tell you, actually, uh, Job chapter 1, verse 21, it's a really good starting point. His theology there is, says this, Naked I came from my mother's room, naked shall I return. The Lord gave the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in God's absolute control and in God's absolute justice, he is one day going to redeem. He's going to bring his chosen home. We can count on that. But in the meantime, today, we are wrestling with a cosmic darkness, with a spiritual force that wants to kill us. But God's still in control. God's justice is still absolute. Now, I'll tell you, practically speaking, though, checking our theology, it will consider all the things that we just talked about already. But on top of that, I want to suggest that sometimes checking our theology, it means checking, like checking in your luggage on a plane, checking our theology, holding back for a minute, sharing your theology. I I mentioned that Job, his friends, they started off really well in chapter 2, verse 13, I love this. It says, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was not a word for a week. They just wept with him. You you see something similar uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. It says this, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But then Job, he started talking. And Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, these miserable comforters became who they were. Because they had to open their mouths too. See, here's the reality we live in. People in pain sometimes say things they may not mean. People in pain sometimes say things that might be uh, theologically questionable. People in pain sometimes say things There is such a deep trauma within them. Sometimes things need to come out. So in those moments, I'm just going to ask you, please check your theology. Hold it back. And just hurt with those who are hurting. Not everything has to become a life lesson. Sometimes you just need to sit. You just need to listen. Sometimes you just need to weep. Just for a minute. I want to end here. I want to encourage you to consider not being miserable comforters. Hopefully, you don't want to be one. I want you to stop assuming a transactional faith by living a transformational relationship with God. I want you to stop blaming the victim by loving the victim. And I want you to check your theology while you check your theology. Okay? Uh, Why don't we pray as the band comes up? Will you pray with me? Father, you are good. You are absolutely in control.
You are absolutely holy. You are absolutely just. And the things that might be happening in the lives of our friends and our family or ourselves, we may not understand them, but you do. So I ask you, allow each and every one of us here to be able to see your glory, find peace in your glory, find peace or shalom in you, God. Allow each and every one of us to be able to be an encouragement to those around us who might be suffering. Neighbor, son, Christ, I pray.